Welcome to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. For the next hour, Monterey College of Law's Dean Mitchell Winnick and law professor Stephen Wagner will discuss current legal events and public policy issues that are affecting our daily lives. They will not provide individual legal advice. If you have a specific legal problem, you're encouraged to contact a lawyer for legal assistance. If you do not have a lawyer, contact the local bar association or lawyer referral service in your community for recommendations. And now, here's Wagner and Winnick on the law. Greetings and welcome to another edition of Wagner and Winnick on the Law. I am San Luis Obispo College of Law professor and trial attorney Stephen Wagner. And as always, I am joined by my co-host, Dean and President of Monterey College of Law, San Luis Obispo College of Law, and Kern County College of Law, Mitchell Winnick. Mitch, good day to you, kind sir. Good day to you, Stephen, and, and welcome to the holiday season. Well, it's a busy time of year between Thanksgiving, Christmas, Hanukkah, New Year's, does anybody get any work done? Wow, that's right. It, it all started uh, right around Halloween, didn't it? <laughs> I think, and I think it goes all the way through Groundhog's Day in February. Yeah, that's right. Have you started your holiday or Christmas shopping yet? You know, I might. I, I think we've had this conversation before, and I think you got me in trouble in a prior year on this conversation. Oh gosh, that's I right. Just need the fifth, but I, I will be honest. As we attempt to do on this show. I am woefully deficient and behind in that activity. You, at least you have a mental list going, though, don't you? Uh, yeah. Some kind of plan? <laughs> Some kind of plan. That's probably right. Yeah. But that's what we're going to talk about today, isn't it? Yeah. Let's, let's, uh, we we want to get into some uh, consumer protection-related issues, consumer goods, uh, consumer rights, and uh, you also wanted to visit briefly the uh, CFPB issue. I know, and that's probably an item that slipped by, uh, the legal issues probably slipped by most folks over the past week or so, but, but I thought it's a great opportunity for us to use this as we like to do as an, uh, just a better example or an, an example to better understand uh, how the federal law works and how there's sometimes apparent conflicts between two statutes that ultimately get decided by a court. And this is a great example of that. Yeah, so how did, how did it get, get to court, and what's this clash between the two statutes, Mitch? So what happened here is the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau, CFPB, was, was created by statute. It's a government agency, and it's, it's termed and discussed as a watchdog agency to protect consumers from the large banks and financial institutions. And no surprise, this came out of the, the huge issues that were several years ago where the banks were found to be doing disreputable things, uh, the too big to fail, the bailout, all of those things came through. And the concern was that the, the, the consumer the account holder had no one looking out for them. And so they created the CFPB. And along with that came a set of regulations of how would it be staffed, who gets to select, and what happens if there's a vacancy. And so what happened was the holdover director, and, and that's a technical term because when a new president comes in, many of the heads of government agencies who are appointed by the president or appointed by the Senate uh, offer their resignation somewhat as a courtesy. Sometimes, in some of them, it's by law. In yeah, sometimes it's symbolic. That's correct. Yeah. And they ask, particularly when there's a transition from one party to the other, they symbolically or actually offer up their resignation and each new president gets to say, I'd like you to stay or I'd like you to not stay. And, and you and I actually talked about that in relation to U.S. attorneys in a number of shows ago. Right? Right. So in this case, Richard Cordray, the executive director or the director of the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau, chose not to leave, chose not to offer his resignation. And that became a, a sore point between that agency and the president. Uh, Cordray recently resigned 
uh, two weeks ago. And as the statute that created the CFPB stipulated, his assistant director would step up and in an interim basis become the director until a new nomination came from the president that was approved by the Senate. Okay, so that's what the statute said. And there's really not any argument about that. It was written very clearly. He appointed an assistant, and they announced that as of his departure that very day, she would take over as the executive director. So what's wrong with that, Stephen? Seems pretty clear, right? Right. So so just to, not that we want to get in the weeds on the political mystique or aspect of this, Mitch, but that, that aspect of it has to do with his failing to resign, right? That's correct. He didn't want to resign, and he wasn't forced to in this case, And but he did finally resign. He'd had his term. Uh, I guess he had come to a point where he felt he was ready to move on. He appointed an assistant, and in, in under that statute, she upon his departure, she stepped up, and it was announced that she would be taking over. Okay, now the drama starts. Well, that, that was viewed as a... Uh, Behind-the-scenes power play, right? It was. Yeah. Although, uh, politically, absolutely. But statutorily, absolutely four-square within the law. Yeah, yeah. Let's hit the law. That's a good point. Okay, four-square within the law. So, what happened is the president said, aha, not so fast. This is a presidential appointment with advice and consent of the Senate, and therefore, I... I'm going to appoint the interim director subject to approval of the Senate or the subject to even someone else being nominated and approved by the Senate. And he looked to the Succession Act, which is a different federal law that gives the president the right to appoint interim individuals upon the vacancy of federal agencies. And it appears that that's exactly what that act said as well. Mm -hmm. So now you had one statutory rule that said the way this would happen is the assistant executive director would step up. You have a separate legislative act that said in the case of the vacancy, the president can elect to appoint someone as an interim. And again, as you pointed out, there were lots of politics because the the political view of the agency and its role from the acting assistant director appointed by Cordray and the well-stated disregard for the agency that Rick Mulvaney, the Office of Management and Budget Director that the president appointed as the interim director who had actually been on record saying that one of the first things they need to do is to do away with this agency. Clearly, there was a political clash. But that's not what brought it to the court, not the politics, as we remind everybody. What brought it to the court was the conflict between these two federal laws. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and we should share, we've done this a bunch of times, that's not uncommon for there to be a conflict. That's right, because these laws happen decades b- between each other. The, the Succession Act is quite old. I don't have the date in front of me right now. But the CFPB is actually quite young. And so these, these, it's typical that you might have a new law that doesn't quite dot the I's, cross the T's with a, a former law. So this went to federal court. It's a federal issue. Went to federal court in Washington, D.C., no surprise, that's where this happened. And uh, the federal judge said, well, I'm going to side with the president on this. Because it went as an emergency order. Because you now had, literally for three days, you had two people claiming to be head of this agency. Must have been very interesting working yeah. so, for those three days. Oh, absolutely. God, that must have been you know, pins and needles. So, so, but it was definitely emergency-based. You're right, because that leaves a big gap there in a, in a very yeah. important position. Because one, one, one of the individuals came and said, I'm in charge, actually sent out an email and said, don't listen to the other person. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the other person was getting very heavy and saying, I'm not getting out of the chair. Yeah, there were, <laughs> there were uh, <laughs> id and super ego clashes there. Yeah. Um, and the court 
the court weighed it and on that for the emergency order uh, determined that the president in their opinion had the legislative priority under that law to be able to appoint his person in for the interim it still will need a permanent appointment that will have to go to the senate for approval but this is to the period of time for the interim okay so good there there you had it. It, it lots of politics lots of very fascinating back and forth for about a week on that but from your standpoint and my standpoint, this is really the way it works. You have two conflicts, two statutes, both of which had a valid claim. And when that happens, it goes to the judge. Yeah, no, Mitch, I like that you started with that today because uh, it's not uncommon for us to take on topics that uh, are, are quite saturated news stories. And this would be one of them. And, of course, it's political intrigue and and political tension that gets most of the press. But uh, when you peel back layers, there's always a law lurking there and a means by which things can get settled or determined. So, And, and to just kind of wrap it up on a today's topic, which is consumer protection, it's more than this was just had the name consumer in the agency name. Uh, the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau, over its relatively short life, has provided almost 12 billion, that's B, billion, in relief to consumers in enforcement actions against major banks and financial institutions. Uh, they've, they have fielded 1.2 million complaints from consumers, and they, they report that they've provided over 29 million consumers with relief where they act on behalf of the consumer against a major bank or financial institution for violation of the consumer laws related to banking. Yeah, that's a good point. So the watch and watchdog is a real potent term. It's almost like a giant Better Business Bureau agency in the sense that they field a lot of a lot of complaints and they uh, actively pursue leads on how to remedy issues. So that's a good point. Yeah, and, and I would encourage folks, as we frequently do, from on the political side of this, it depends on one's view. Obviously, those who believe that, that big banks should be restored to having a lot of independence uh, have felt that this agency stood in the way of that, and they want it to be clipped back. Because this agency was given a, a very unusual amount of independence in their right to be a consumer watchdog, and uh, you know, they, they issued, I think it was, what, a $100 million fine against Wells Fargo on their fraudulent activities for opening up false accounts in clients' names. Uh, so they've had a lot of, of perceived power in that. Those who believe the bank should have more flexibility weigh against this. Those who believe that consumers need a watchdog weigh on the other side. Another one of those issues that if you feel strongly about this, you need to watch watch the electeds and the politics in this so that you can weigh your opinion in appropriately. Yeah, absolutely, Mitch. So, let, hey, let's set the table on some of the consumer protection issues we want to get into because we're coming up on the first break. Yeah, after we come back, let's talk about what happens when you buy things for the holidays on places like Amazon, Craigslist, and the other uh, digital storefronts because the question is, what do you get to take back if you have a return, and what are, how do warranties work, and things like that? Yeah, that's right, Mitch, and I don't have the data in front of me, but I know that online purchases have, have spiked dramatically uh, over the years, and that brings a whole host of new issues related to consumer rights, and um, your reference to warranties and contract law are things that we can also expand upon uh, how do you deal with the return of an item? Uh, is it more challenging to go through that process when you've made the purchase uh, from a distance? In other words, through some clicks online as opposed to walking up to the counter old style. Do you remember those days, Mitch, where you walk <laughs> up and try to return something? <laughs> I have. I do remember that. And actually, you're going to find out you can still do that. You can. Let's take it on. We come back uh, from this first break. We'll talk about the various rules uh, that protect consumers. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the law over Voice America Radio. When we come back from this break, we'll pick up our discussion on consumer rights. Please listen to this word from our sponsors and don't go away. We'll be right back. 
Monterey College of Law is excited to announce that we are opening our third branch law school in Bakersfield. We are Kern County College of Law, and we are an accredited branch of Monterey College of Law. Established 44 years ago, we are now accepting applications for students who will begin in summer of 2017. As with our other branches in Monterey and San Luis Obispo, Kern County College of Law offers convenient evening classes Mondays through Thursdays. At Kern County College of Law, we have a tuition rate guarantee program that freezes your tuition rate when you begin and protects you from annual tuition increases. At Kern County College of Law, our faculty is composed of highly esteemed local lawyers and judges. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Call me, Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Kern County College of Law, 831-582-4000, extension 1012. For more information, This is Mitch Winnick, co-host of Wagner & Winnick on the Law. We are pleased to welcome Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers and their related Minimus Institute as sponsors of our program. Location shouldn't keep you from the quality surgery you need. MPSC's Destination Surgical Institute features world-class surgeons, concierge assistants, and transparent bundled fees. For more information, go to www.montereysurgerycenter.com. Thank Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers for state-of-the-art outpatient surgery. Our patients get better faster and get back to doing what they love. Out-of-towners and self-insured employers can now benefit from our quality care through our concierge division, Minimus Institute. Call 831-333-4153 or visit minimusinstitute.com to learn about how we're reducing the cost of surgery by 40 to 60% while delivering state-of-the-art care. Many people believe that law firms are pretty much the same. At Shepard Mullen, we don't. Our law firm believes that what separates us from the pack is not what we do, but how we do it. Aggressive, not conservative. Team players, not one-man bands. Problem solvers, not just legal practitioners. Our clients clearly understand and value this difference. Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepherdmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D. M-U-L-L-I-N dot com. Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. We're talking about consumer protection, and we want to kickstart that discussion. And Mitch, hey, let me frame it this way. Ever returned an item? You know, you purchase an item and something's wrong with it. You walk back into the store. I have. I have indeed. And, and did you engage in spirited discussions with someone at that store, you know, I've had pretty good luck. Uh, I've had pretty good luck usually, but I'm not one of those pushy returning customers. Usually, I've brought it back within the time frame and for a good reason. It's not that I've been wearing it or using it for 90 days and on the 89th or on the 89th day, I go running in and say, I changed my mind. Yeah, okay, all right. That's, I wasn't suggesting you would do that. <laughs> It'd be like picking out a wardrobe and then returning it on the very last day. I, I have heard tales of, you know, people buying a, an entire outfit for uh, an event, not taking off any of the tags since they only need it for one night and then taking it back the next day. I must confess I've heard of that practice myself, Mitch. I and can't you know, say I've actually observed it. I've just heard, you know, maybe they're just... Tall tales. Right. No, me too. I heard it from a friend who heard it from a friend. Is that where you're going? That's where I'm going. Okay. I'm with you. All right. So uh, returning items. I wanted to share a story, Mitch, that I share with you uh, off mic. And and that is uh, when I engage in jury selection, one of the things I, I do often to engage prospective jurors in dialogue is 
I frame some questions that get them to talk. And one of the things I do is designed to get jurors to recognize the importance of rules of engagement. Because after all, in our system, ultimately jurors will be instructed that they must read jury instructions. And those are the rules of engagement, right? And that's critical for you because there's a lot of work that goes into those jury instructions, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. And um, one way or means by which I get a dialogue started is I ask prospective jurors if they've ever returned a consumer good and while doing so had the receipt in their hand and had to pour over word for word all of the return language in a receipt. And... Usually, I get a dialogue going because most people have experienced that, right? Even in the online era, that still works to, to get a dialogue going. And I did it once, and I had a prospective juror, I think it was a couple of years ago, uh, share a story about returning electronics, an, an item of electronics. I'll leave the store name out. I'll call it Acme Electronics. Okay, <laughs> and, and if you can conjure up the visual here, have you ever seen one of those receipts that kind of goes floor to ceiling? Oh, I have indeed. They just click, 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 click all the way through. There are coupons. There's fine print. There's, you're lucky if you can even read it. Yeah, so, so it's the fine print aspect of this story that I think is so amazing. So this prospective juror told a story where she returned the consumer goods to Acme Electronics and engaged the manager with receipt, with the returned item, and actually poured over all the language on the receipt, rolled it out on a table. <laughs> so it was funny to be in court for this one because she methodically worked through the process and actually told the story how she won out, you know, won that battle by calling attention to language in the fine print, right? No legal training, just right. ten tenacity, and the will to read everything, right? An educated consumer. Yeah, and it was a great story because it made me think about a lot of things, including marketing and goodwill, you know, because I think ultimately in this story that she shared, the manager of the store ultimately relented, acknowledged that she should be allowed to return the item. And frankly, I don't know if that means that they just gave her a break or she actually technically won the argument, but the point was that she was vigilant about it and actually read everything. So this is my way of kind of giving a little PSA announcement. Read everything. Look through it all. Well, that's great advice, Stephen, particularly in this day of where you, you can buy things in store, online, through third parties, individually from someone directly. And, and it's a reminder that this is a contractual negotiation between a buyer and a seller. And the, the fine print actually counts. And, and it's so easy to just blow by it and then assume that you have certain rights. There are, a, there are some of them that are protected by statute. There are consumer fraud protections. And there are some of them that would be fraudulent to the level that you could go to the local district attorney and ask that action be taken against a, a, a criminal act, a fraudulent act. But for the most part, these are contractual negotiations between a buyer and a seller, whether it's Nordstrom's and one person or person to person. And your point is so perfectly taken, particularly in the rush of doing holiday shopping. You've got to pay attention to the details of the warranties and the return policies because they are not the same at individual and different stores. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. And, um, you know, those floor-to-ceiling size receipts uh, contain, in essence, a contract. You know, we had, we had referenced fine print numerous times. And, and, you know, Mitch, when we talk about online purchases, uh, I think it's probably fair to say that the great majority of people click through a lot of those issues. You know, they're, they're uh, pretty quick on the draw to click that I agree box, if you know what I mean. That's that last little box <laughs> it is. down to the bottom. <laughs> and it's, 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 it's sitting down there glowing, and it's really just saying, you know, if you click me, you can get through this torture. And since I frequently forget, and you go through and, and say complete, and it comes right back and says, 
you haven't finished this transaction. It takes you right back to that little box. Oh, yeah. To check. And it says, almost always, I have read and agree to the policies and then fill in the blank, whatever it is you're about to do. Yeah. And now, the real question, let's start right off the top, is that binding as an agreement? Because we know that probably, unlike your lady in the story, 99.999999 consumers have not clicked to actually read that. Yeah. Is, no, but I is agree. it binding that they've clicked that box? Yeah, you know, it, it, it may or may not be. The issue usually centers around the language. You know, so, I mean, there's two ways to take this one on, Mitch. One is, is the language uh, or the contractual language or very often warranty-based language, which is an integral part of a contract typically, uh, is it uh, unfair? Is it uh, what we would call in contract parlance, uh, is it an adhesion contract? Is it too one-sided so as to favor the seller over the buyer? is one issue. So there's always an opportunity for a consumer to dig in and make arguments about the actual content of the agreement. Um, with respect to cavalier clicking, you know, of the I agree button, if you will, um, one of the arguments often is, you know, I was, I was in a hurry. I was duped into clicking the glowing <laughs> I agree button. I've seen that argument before. I was in the glow of the, <laughs> was the in purchase. The, yeah, I could hardly uh, wait to get it delivered tomorrow. <laughs> I know. I hope I'm not creating a new defense here, the, the glow defense. No. But my point there is that the method by which the contract is displayed is in some way um, deceptive in a way. So there are some arguments about the nature of, of the of the post, the I agree post that you had referenced there. So there's a there's a host of issues going on there, but I think mostly, you know, most of the action centers around what is usually called the four corners, you know, the actual language. Right, right. And I think that the other aspect of this is a public policy aspect. In order for there to be online transactions, the the issue of click through warranties click-through limitations, click-through agreements has been, for the most part, resolved in the courts in favor of the corporations. Yeah. And and it's not as necessarily a, it's almost what we, it's not quite what we call a legal fiction, but it, it in my mind, it always seems like it's pretty close. I think we all know that people don't read it. On the other hand, how else would you do it? Would you make somebody read through all of the fine print and then have the click at the bottom of that, uh, the companies have come to the courts and set one challenge and said, you know, it's there for them to read. All they have to do is click. The whole thing is there. And if it's right next to the box, they can click the box or they can click the little highlighted part within the sentence. It'll take them to all the details. And so that's kind of a buyer beware, caveat emptor, buyer beware. The courts have upheld that unless there's one of those categories that you've talked about, the hiding of it or the deliberate misleading or misrepresented language, unless that's your argument, which would have to be made in court, not at the return desk, uh, you're going to be bound to those things you've clicked to at the, on that online transaction. Yeah, that, that's true, Mitch. There is one comparison or difference that I, I can share, and, and that would be the car buying experience, just by way of analogy, if, if you can conjure up the visual of, and of course, you can now buy cars online, and that's also pretty common, but um, I'm talking old school, where you actually go through the process of going from the floor back to the boiler room, to the manager's office, that kind of thing, right? Uh, in that setting... There's still paperwork that's presented to you, you know, and I'm talking about that poignant moment when you're looking over the desk at the, the sales manager and all those sales docs are placed in front of you. Stack of them. Yeah. And I mean, if you can, it's by way of analogy, there's a number of boxes you need to click and sign. Uh, in that industry, there's a cooling off period by law. In other words, the consumer has time to contemplate things, and 
the sales agency needs to inform the consumer of that. So there's one of the documents that's in that stack. Is that it is. It is. So I think that's true. And from the old days when there used to be door-to-door salespeople, uh, there was a statutory cooling off period in almost every state about door-to-door sales as well. Right. There were, there was, it was fearful that the trained salesperson would prey on an unsuspecting consumer at the front door. Uh, they buy the encyclopedias or the vacuum cleaner. That's being- oh, I knew you were going to do the vacuum cleaner. <laughs> Do, do you remember the old stunt where they'd actually throw down some dust and do yes. the demo? Oh, yeah. Okay. I, I must admit, I will say this. We actually bought a vacuum cleaner from a door-to-door salesman once. They came in and vacuumed our bed and then dumped it. They showed that it was empty. They came in and vacuumed our bed and showed how much was pulled out. And we bought the vacuum cleaner. Oh, we have to this thing. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's good sales work. <laughs> well, fortunately, it was a good vacuum cleaner, too. Oh, that's a great story. But after we come back from the break, Stephen, I'd like to go into some of the details about uh, some of the specific options of buying online. But, but you're, you're right. Your, your overarching comment, which is that people need to read the fine print, they need to know that clicking that box online is a critical element if it's one of the categories that are protected by a cooling off period that's important to know uh, that's going to be in the fine print or one of the documents so it, it all does cycle back to where you started the whole discussion which is there are consumer rights but you have to read and understand them first because it's the law can only force them to put it in front of you. It can't force you to read them. Yeah, that's right. And we can also talk a little bit about misrepresent, misrepresentation also. That's a factor too. Uh, so when we come back from the break, we'll expand on our discussion about consumer protection laws and rights and maybe hone in, Mitch, specifically on the return of items and really where the tension lies in terms of digging into contractual language because there's both uh, civil and, as you mentioned previously, potential criminal overtones. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law over Voice America Radio. We are talking about consumer protection-related issues today. We'll continue that discussion after this word from our sponsors. Please don't go away. If you've been considering a new career, now is the perfect time to look into the field of law. Whether you're fresh out of school or just thinking about change, the San Luis Obispo College of Law is now accepting applications for 2017 admission. The San Luis Obispo College of Law is an accredited branch of the Monterey College of Law School. You can get a law degree from an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo. San Luis Obispo College of Law's highly esteemed faculty is comprised of local judges and lawyers. San Luis Obispo College of Law classes are held conveniently in the evening. The San Luis Obispo College of Law's campus is located at 4119 Broad Street at Tank Farm in Slow. Make today the first step in changing your life. Attend an informational session and get answers to your questions. Call Dean of Admissions Wendy LaRiviere at 805-439-4096. Visit slowlaw.org for more information. That's slowlaw.org. Did you ever wonder, what is the basis of international law? Where would I even go to look up international laws? This is law professor Michael Cohen with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. The United Nations Treaty Collection is an online database that provides information on more than 560 treaties and international legal documents deposited with the United Nations. The database also indicates which countries have signed, ratified, or lodged objections to the treaties. These legal agreements are the basis of international law. They cover topics such as human rights, disarmament, commodities, refugees, the environment, and the law of the sea. Lately, we have heard political candidates making lots of statements about enforcing international law. But if you want to be better informed about the actual laws in place, 
go to treaties.un.org. That is treaties.un.org. The U.S. Constitution has recently created national headlines in the debate about filling the vacancy created by the sudden death of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. The president and certain members of Congress are at odds about what the Constitution requires when there's a vacancy on the Supreme Court. Who is right? And how can everyday citizens be informed enough to know the answer? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. ConstitutionCenter.org is a website published by the National Constitution Center. The center was established by Congress to provide information about the United States Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. If you want information about the Constitution's history and what it means today, go to ConstitutionCenter.org and form your own opinion about the law. Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. You've been listening to us talk about consumer protection and consumer rights. But Mitch, you wanted to share a story about uh, potential goodwill of the actual consumer. Well, you had mentioned earlier that that there are two decisions a, a retailer must decide on. One is the legal, and in the case of your example of the woman who brought the long warranty back and essentially educated the store personnel on what she felt her rights were. Uh, there's another way that, that gets balanced in all of this, and that's just the consumer image. And so many times, warranty and return policies get modified by a store manager because they've made a decision that it's better for long-term image of a happy consumer than sticking to the rules and having an angry consumer uh, go marching out the door because as as the story goes you know if you like something you might tell one person but if you really dislike your experience you're more likely to tell 10 or 20 mm-hmm. so as the story goes Nordstrom's in you know, one one time it was said to be Fairbanks another time it was said to be Anchorage but this was the Nord a Nordstrom store in Alaska and supposedly a consumer comes into the store rolling believe it you can get this image Rolling two snow tires, <laughs> rolls them into the store to the return desk, wants to see the manager, talks to the manager and says, I am unhappy with these and I've brought them to return. And as the story goes, the manager, without blinking an eye, said, absolutely, and refunded the money to the consumer. So that in and of itself is not that surprising a story, right? So the kick to the story is Nordstrom's doesn't sell snow tires. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And that manager is now where? Is he in the Nordstrom <laughs> Hall of Fame? <laughs> well, from a standpoint of consumer stories that have been told over and over again for decades, uh, this is this is the top one. It's it's told in sales seminars. It's done in consumer service training. So I would have to say that yes, not only did the story illustrate that Nordstrom's wanted to have an image that the customer always comes first. Period. End of story. Yeah, that, that's but they're right. now affiliated with that story that's gone on for decades after it allegedly happened. That that's a great. Great story. I, I was actually thinking of the scenarios where the retailer or seller is almost what I'll call put on the spot. Um, the classic to me would be the return of food. Yes. At a restaurant. Right. I mean, it's pretty rare to see a tug of war over <laughs> over whether or not the the restaurant owner is actually going to accept the return of the food. You know, that that's a classic yeah, how customers. many bites? How many bites into the meal before you have to well, declare that it's not what you wanted? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I was just talking about that's a good example of the customer is always right scenario. That's right. So let's talk a little about what, uh, some, a couple of examples and something to keep in mind if you're a consumer. So one of the largest, if not the largest, online retailer is Amazon, and people buy all types of things through Amazon. And so the question would be, well, how do you return something if you don't like it? So you need to remember that 
that some things are sold directly by Amazon or fulfilled by Amazon, and some come from third parties. So the very first rule in buying something online is to pay particularly attention, particular attention to the warranty and return requirements because sometimes, like in Amazon's case, they will be providing a return policy, and sometimes, in the case of, let's say, Craigslist, there is absolutely no systemic return policy that the, the sales medium, in this case Craigslist versus Amazon, is involved in. Craigslist is at the opposite end of the story. They, they offer absolutely no guarantee, nothing whatsoever, and they, your click-through agreement with Craig, sorry, Craigslist is that this is an individual-to-individual, -individual, and if they provide a guarantee or warranty, fine. If not, don't come ask us. Go find them. Yeah, the, I think it's good points. So in the Craigslist scenario, they're serving as a conduit, in essence. That's absolutely right. And if I, I opened up and read their service of use uh, policy, and it is absolutely clear about that. On the other end, Amazon says you can return a new unopened item. Now, notice new, unopened, very mm -hmm. key, sold and fulfilled by Amazon within 30 days of delivery for a full, for a full refund. Uh, and they, for this holiday season that we're talking about, they specifically say that between November 1st and December 31st, you have until January 31st to return a, an item for a full refund. But notice that's a new unopened item. So as the fulfillment uh, processor, they're saying as long as you haven't opened it and played with it, then it's not a warranty issue. No questions asked. You can just send it back, new and unopened, and you will get a 100% refund. Okay? Now, the question is what, is, what if you're claiming that it is broken? Because okay? that's a different policy. Now we're talking <laughs> about warranty, right? And, and that frequently then says you must apply for a warranty return to the manufacturer. Yeah, because yeah, the fulfillment facilitator, so Amazon in that hypothetical, is not likely going to be the target party to honor a warranty. That's correct, because they're not trying to step in the place of the manufacturer and say, well, if they've manufactured a defective or broken good uh, and sent it to you, we're going to be a super warranty on top of that. Yeah. So, Mitch, we're in, as you might say, we're in tall cotton here. This is important stuff right here because I'm making notes as you're introducing this scenario, and I made a note of cast and roll. So the message would be know the parties, know who's involved, because Amazon as a fulfillment facilitator is going to work with another person that is very likely, I'll introduce this term, the manufacturer, right? That's right. And manufacturer warranties, I don't quite remember. It was a long time ago, but it seemed like we spent a long time in law school talking about manufacturer warranties. Yeah, absolutely. And so the actual producer of that product is the one uh, that's going to be probably held accountable if there is, in fact, a breach of warranty. So, for instance, for fitness for a particular purpose, which is a fancy way of saying the item doesn't work. That's right. So, so we could put these into a couple of big categories. One, you could just say buyer's remorse. You, know, you bought it, you kind of that, that excitement of the glow principle that you described. <laughs> mm -hmm. I, I really think I need this, and you really do think you need it right up to the point that you or I talk to our wife about it, and they inform us that we actually didn't need it after all. Right. So, or, or, or Mitch, in my case, um, we already have that. <laughs> we already you, have you, one. You, you, you ever face that? <laughs> I, 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 I would call that like the Lowe's rule. No, yes. no Lowe's without a list. Yes, yes, yes. Why did you buy that? We already have that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it looked like something we would need. Well, it was. That's why it was already purchased. You and it's there in the garage. You went off script again. Yep. <laughs> so, uh, so in that case... You know, Amazon 
as a fulfillment. And virtually all of the uh, regular retailers that allow you to buy online, the, the Targets, the Walmarts, uh, the Nordstroms, they have a return policy that's specifically outlined on the webpage when you're buying it. And in most cases, they will allow you to return it within a designated period of time, you, many times 30 days, in the case of some of the retailers, 90 days, but you, again, have to look at the details to know. And they will allow you to return it and have a policy for returning it online, or in, in almost every case, you're allowed to bring it back to the store. So you, back to your desk uh, story, they are still there, and you could buy something online and take it back to that store and get the same refund policy. Okay, so that's important to know. The warning to everyone is that sometimes during the holiday season, if there are specials, sometimes they have special products that they've manufactured just for sale during the holidays. They're not in their regular inventory. Sometimes there's special pricing and deals that have been offered. Those could all be involved in the final decision of what you can return whether you can get a cash return or whether you can merely get a store exchange for the return. Okay? So it's hard to generalize because, as you pointed out from the beginning, each one of these policies are in writing either on the website, on the sales receipt, or on that little bitty warranty card or postcard that is in virtually every product or in the case of some products, printed right on the outside of the box. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true, Mitch. And, you know, Mitch, let me just get in this before uh, we part for the, this session. The, the, the criminal overtones are also uh, a topic that's uh, discussion-worthy, too. And I just wanted to share with our listeners that uh, most prosecuting agencies have a division within their office. Um, we certainly do in the San Luis Obispo County DA's office um, that deals with consumer protection issues that are generally quasi-criminal and, and civil in nature. There's some criminal laws that are implicated and civil laws together, but things like unfair business practices and unscrupulous conduct by uh, businesses, deceptive advertising and things like that, those kind of things are, uh, are governed and protected by our criminal laws and statutes. So it's important that our listeners know that. Well, that's a great reminder, Stephen. So I guess we should kind of wrap up all of this. We've, we, we're calling out for consumers to do a couple of very specific things. First of all, probably slow down in your purchasing. <laughs> uh, pay attention to the details of the sales agreement. Pay attention to that little box that you're going to be offered to click at the bottom. Uh, you should probably click on that description and look at some of the key terms so that you understand is your return policy for unopened only or if it's opened, can you return it online? Can you return it at the store? Is it for cash refund or is it for an exchange of like value to the, in the store? All of those are going to be outlined in the detail of the warranties. And, and particularly importantly, keep in mind who your transaction is with. So, for example, we talked about Amazon, but I'll throw in at the last moment here, keep an eye down on eBay because eBay is a person-to-person. eBay doesn't offer a guarantee like Amazon does for returning it to eBay because they're just being the facilitator for the two individuals selling. Yep, good point. Vacation bookings. Exactly right. There's there, You have to look at the details of who's standing behind and where you get your refund if something goes wrong or it's not as you were promised. And Mitch, if you're ever in the need of returning snow tires, no, just kidding. (laughs) Go back to Fairbanks, Alaska, (laughs) and that Nordstrom's will take your snow tires back. (laughs) Well, we hope that for everyone to have an actual happy holiday season, uh, particularly on the retail side of it, that you'll keep in mind these warnings and these guidelines so that you don't find yourself having to pursue, as you've said, some type of uh, unscrupulous behavior down at the district attorney's office to get their help. Because that's not the way you want to go at the end of the holidays. True that. Good luck with your holiday shopping. I will uh, 
promise that I'll try to do better on mine as well. All right, All right Mitch. Thanks. Good show. As we always remind you at the end of each show, you can hear an archive of today's program at wagnerandwinnick.com or at the Voice America Business Channel. We warn you and we implore that if you don't know the law, know a lawyer. I never finished college. I had a baby and it was time for me to do more with my life. I wanted to be an attorney and be able to help people, but I didn't know I could go to law school without a four-year degree. I decided to go to Monterey College of Law because it's local and I was working full-time and had a child, so quitting work and going to a full-time law school was not really an option for me. Being able to go to school at night and the cost of tuition allowed me to graduate debt-free. Obviously, my income has increased. My schedule is more flexible now and it does allow me to spend more time with my daughter. My name is Brandi Luis and I'm an attorney at law. Did you dream of becoming a lawyer? You should know that you can apply to Monterey College of Law without a bachelor's degree. I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Monterey College of Law. We're accepting applications now for our spring start. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Find out how at montereylaw.edu. This is Mitch Winnick, co-host of Wagner & Winnick on the Law. We are pleased to welcome Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers and their related Minimus Institute as sponsors of our program. Location shouldn't keep you from the quality surgery you need. MPSC's Destination Surgical Institute features world-class surgeons, concierge assistants, and transparent bundled fees. For more information, go to www.montereysurgerycenter.com. Thank Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers for state-of-the-art outpatient surgery. Our patients get better faster and get back to doing what they love. Out-of-towners and self-insured employers can now benefit from our quality care through our concierge division, Minimus Institute. Call 831-333-4153 or visit minimusinstitute.com to learn about how we're reducing the cost of surgery by 40 to 60% while delivering state-of-the-art care. Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the United States, Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. You might ask, what is the Shepard Mullen difference? The answer is you. Our clients are our focus. Every Shepard Mullen attorney and staff member is issued a plaque listing our client service expectations. We regularly give Clients First awards to attorneys and staff members who go the extra mile for our clients. Client service is not just words, it is part of our culture and permeates everything we do. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepherdmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D-M-U-L-L-I-N dot com. 